Mac Power Users, Episode 540, Subroutine in the Brain. Hello and welcome back to Mac Power Users. My name is Stephen Hackett. I'm joined as always by my friend and yours, Mr. David Sparks. Hey, Stephen. How are you today? Pretty good. I was telling you before we started, it's a... it's very rainy and windy. There was a tropical storm that came through up through Louisiana, and now it's here in my back door here in Memphis. So uh, it's, it's a very exciting time. Lots of wind, lots of rain, very tropical feeling outside. Is June gloom like a term in Memphis? Like in California, we always say that if it rains in June. I don't know if that's just a thing here or over there, too. Uh, yeah, I don't think I don't think that's a thing that we that we do. Yeah, well, we had a little rain too, but we're we we're all like jumping up and down when it rains here anytime, so we're happy, <laughs> right? But yeah, anyway, I think I think the the heat is coming here in it Southern is. California. Yeah, it's uh, it's here. It was really hot this weekend, but uh, we have a lot of tech to talk about. Which yes, is fun. we do. I'm excited to to catch up with you in our feedback episode. Yeah. Uh, before we get started, just the follow up. Thank you, everyone, for all the support with the photos field guide. Uh, there is a uh, the the final you know call on the introductory pricing will be shortly after the show publishes. Uh, the introductory pricing went longer than I wanted, but the the reason was I I had to get all the closed captioning first, and it, it just took a while. But it's done now and uploaded, so all the closed captioning is there. I did something cool. I combined all the closed caption files into a PDF all the text files. So if you just want to read the text, you can do that. That's a new thing, but cool. Uh, just, just a few more days after the show publishes. So if you okay. want to go to go to learn.maxbarky.com. That's the only introduction uh, news I have. Yeah, I think, uh, I think that's it. We have, we're going to talk at the very end of the show about our upcoming schedule. So that'll be, be at the end, but that's not yeah. really an introduction. It's like a outroduction. There we go. There we go. WWDC is coming. We have plans. We do. Uh, they involve le- fewer airplanes than they usually do, yeah. but we got yeah, some stuff do. we're going to do. Uh, but first, uh, we want to talk a little bit about our sort of tech as we've been not only working from home, because you and I have both done that for a long time, but since we've been quarantined at home, we have a lot of listeners who are dealing with working from home for the first time or at least in a much broader sense they have in the past. But I want to talk a little bit about maybe how it was affecting us. Yeah, I've seen a couple emails come through now of people asking, you know, now that you've been working at home with everybody, how has that changed things for you? Mm-hmm. And for me, it's actually changed things quite a bit. But um, I don't have my own, you know, like separate studio like you do. I, I would. So how has it impacted you, Stephen? You know, it's 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 really been very little in terms of what my work looks like day to day. You know, I'm still coming out in the studio. The kids have been home now since March. My wife has been home. You know, she went back to work as a teacher basically right before this started <laughs> and, and then was at home with everybody else. So I, I was used to that there in the summer and the winter break and everything. I think it's been good, though, because we haven't had any outside activities, right? Like churches shut down. There's no spring soccer for our daughter, anything like that. And so we have gotten a lot of time with the kids. And mine are still young. So mine are 11, 9, and 5. And so they like hanging out with us still, which is great. And so we've had a lot of good family time through this. Um, I will say, especially in the last six weeks or so, and I've alluded to this elsewhere, but work has just been very busy. So I'm still working in my studio at my desk that I've been at now for 
you know, three years since we bought this house, but I've had a lot of late evenings and early mornings and weekend work as we are at Relay FM on that side of things, uh, putting a lot of things together that you as a listener are going to see very, very soon about our, our membership stuff. So that's taken a lot out of me. In fact, I was talking to Mike Hurley, my partner this morning, saying that after WBDC, I'm going to take a couple of days to, to take off because I haven't done that in a while. And I think it's time. Yeah. Over on the Focus podcast, we had Sean McCabe on and yeah. I I committed to taking a week sabbatical in July. Awesome. I've never... Since I've gone out on my own, I honestly haven't taken any time off. We, we've had some vacations, but there have been vacations where I worked. I'm not sure how this is all going to happen, but I've committed. So now it's got to happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> One of the things I've done already is we've rescheduled that week's podcast. So I will be recording <laughs> it early. So. I saw that. I saw like, oh, something moved in the calendar. Uh, no, that's yeah. great. And even if you don't work from home normally like we do, or maybe especially if you don't work from home normally like we do, Trying to find time to take off is really important, even though for a lot of us, you know, vacations and travel are still out of the picture. Um, but I know that's really hard. You know, I know uh, I've got friends here locally who have been furloughed or taking pay cuts or they've their employees already said, hey, you know, everyone's vacation time is sort of cut in half this year. And so there's a lot of factors here. But even if it's, you know, spending uh, an afternoon just in the backyard reading your favorite book, just finding a way to break away from it is proven very important to me over the last five years or so when I can do it. Yeah. For me, the, uh, it's been more disruptive. You know, we live in the typical Southern California house. It's too small for us. Well, I, you know, I take that back. It's just right for us, but you know, it's a three bedroom house and daughter number one had left and lived in LA, but now she's back home. And so I vacated the extra bedroom, which had turned into my studio. Um, we kind of turned our house upside down and there's an area of the downstairs that wasn't being used. So now that has turned into the studio and that was a big project. And then we moved daughter number one home from LA, which was a big project. And now the two daughters have, have swapped rooms and they're doing stuff. So we've had this kind of ongoing construction thing going on throughout all of this. So it's been uh, difficult. And my main workspace now is in more of the main area of the house. I'm not in an isolated room where I can shut the door and kind of disappear. And that has been both positive and negative. Um, For the day-to-day work stuff, I actually prefer it where I'm at now. Uh, The sunlight in the room is way better. And I kind of like being in the room where people are walking around. As weird as that sounds, they don't really interrupt me. And you know, I don't like being isolated from my family that much, you know, so it's kind of sure. nice, you know, as they're coming and going, I can kind of keep an eye on what's going on. We have the little puppy who's not so little anymore. And uh, she's kind of a downstairs dog, really. So she sleeps next to me most of the day as I'm sitting there working. And that's kind of great. So there's a whole lot to like about it. Um, the uh, But there are times where it's it's a problem, like I need to focus on something and they're in the next room watching TV. I can actually hear the TV from my new workspace. So the Apple AirPods Pro and noise canceling has really kind of taken on a new life for me. Mm-hmm. I mean, noise canceling headphones are always great, but ones that fit into your ear so they're not so, you know, they're not cans on your head. Um, my ears get sore wearing the big cans mm-hmm. after a while. Uh, and maybe it's just because I'm too cheap to buy really good ones, but either way, um, the, uh, so the noise canceling in ear AirPods pro are awesome. And it's remarkable how good they are 
you know, I put them in like they'll be watching TV. I can tell you right now they're going through a Shit's Creek thing where that seems to be the only thing that's on TV. And it starts it's so good. It starts with an annoying tuba song. Oh, yeah, it does. <laughs> and I really dislike the music. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and it's great. I put those um, those headphones in and it's like just like throwing that tuba like overboard. Sure. Or off the Grand Canyon or out of an airplane. I don't know, whatever. <laughs> um, so it's it's great. And uh, and it is kind of funny because they finally figured out that sometimes when they talk over to me, I don't hear them at all. Right. <laughs> so that's kind of fun. But yeah, the, so the AirPods Pro have been a big help for that. I have to plan like w- when I'm going to do client calls or recording. Like I just did a, a released a new YouTube video on dictation and I um, I recorded that in the morning when everybody's still in bed. And so, you know, you just got to kind of plan around it Um, because I podcast so much when things return to normal, I think it'll be fine to record in that new studio. But right now it's just too much to ask to have the whole family like tiptoeing around the downstairs while I'm making Mac power users for two hours. Sure. So we've set up a studio B my old studio, which is now my daughter's bedroom. She has an iMac. We put a microphone and a board on there. And she actually has a podcast too now. Oh, nice. I really mentioned that. She's making a podcast about play, um, about playwriting. So that's cool. I'll put a link in the show notes if you guys are interested. Uh, so we've got two, we've got two studios now, which is nice. Like I've been making Mac power users the last few weeks in studio B as we call it. The other thing that's changed for me a lot is iPad usage. Mm-hmm. I've always been a big fan of uh, the big iPad at home and the small iPad on the road. You know, just the smaller one makes so much more sense when you're leaving the house. Sure. And the small iPad, I, I just had to turn it on the other day to do an update on it. And I just have not been using it at all um, through this period, you know, because my usual rig is I've got the iMac and then I've got a um, a platform underneath mm-hmm. my iMac that the the big iPad fits on and it's awesome having both you know devices to me all day. But when I want to work at home, like review a contract or whatever, I'll just grab the big iPad with the pencil attached and go sit outside in the garden or on the couch or move around the house. And that's all I've been doing. The two iPad lifestyle, if I was stuck here forever, would not be tenable. Right. Cause you're just not using that other one at home. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense for me. I've really been, uh, reminded how much I like having a big desktop setup, you know, that yeah. my MacBook Pro really hasn't moved in months. Uh, occasionally, I will take it in to to maybe work in the evening or something if I have something that's really pressing. But honestly, it's been spent most of the time just plugged in on top of my file cabinet, just kind of waiting for me to to come back to it. So yeah, it's it's been nice to continue to have this space. And I know I'm very fortunate to have it. And this has been a good reminder of that. Yeah, well, I've actually got my MacBook Pro is um, like the second workstation for my various enterprises. And with the my daughter's home, I've been hiring them to mm-hmm. do some processing and like, like I, you know, you don't want to hear the details of a lawyer, but like I have a bunch of corporate books for clients and I've hooked that up to the uh, scan snap and I've had my daughter going through systematically making scans of all of those records and like she's home. And, you know, I can pay, she doesn't have a job right now because there are no jobs. And so I can pay her a little bit to, to do some work for me. So the, that laptop has kind of become, that's what that laptop is serving right now more than anything else. But yeah, it's been interesting 
I mean, I think part of me will like when things return to normal and, you know, I, I really did have kind of the run of the house, you know, for so mm-hmm. many years, but I also like you really love the family time and the, you know, just seeing them every day and having meals together and, and we go on walks together and it just, it really is like a second chance, you know, mm. I don't, I don't know if that's not the right word, but the, uh, it's just, it's extra time with my kids that I didn't think I was going to get. Yeah, no, that's cool. There's, you know, there is upside in it for sure. This episode of Mac Power Users is brought to you by 1Password, the system that both David and I both rely on it to keep our passwords safe and secure and with us wherever we go. It's because 1Password supports a wide range of devices. Of course, it's on your Mac or PC, but it's also on the iPhone and iPad. And it means that I can get to my passwords with a single password. I don't have to remember the hundreds of entries I have in there. And on my mobile devices or on my laptop, it's protected by Touch ID or Face ID because they're really good about keeping up with everything these big technology companies are doing. A cool, recent, rather nerdy feature is the 1Password command line tool. This is really cool. So if you are a big command line user, you can now uh, work with your 1Password data through there. So you can create new items in 1Password. You can edit them. You can get specific values all from the command line, which is uh, pretty neat. I've been playing with it, and I think it's uh, I think it's really cool. One of my favorite features is 1Password for families, so I can share login information with the important people in my life. So my wife and I have a shared vault with bank accounts and you know all the things you need as a as a couple, and then we each have our own vaults, so she doesn't have to see all the passwords I have. I don't have to see all the ones she has, but those shared ones live in a single source. And I can't tell you how much time that has saved up. We used to go back and forth all the time about trying to log into something. Was it, do you know the password? Do I know the password? 1Password for Families has solved all of that. So if you head on over to onepasswordcom slash MPU, you can learn a whole lot more and sign up for a free 30-day trial. When you sign up, you'll get 20% off. That's onepasswordcom slash MPU. All right, so when we finished uh, the show on the Photos Field Guide, the after show, I talked a little bit about the production, and there was a bunch of forum posts and, and emails to me saying that I didn't give enough detail, didn't open the kimono far enough. So I'm not sure if I'm supposed to say that, but I did. <laughs> Is that like a bad thing now, Stephen? I don't, I don't know. I'm not hip. Uh, me either. I'm sorry if that was bad. Anyway. So I thought I'd share a little bit more about, you know, what goes into making the field guides. They've definitely changed over the years. Uh, we did a whole show on making a field guide many years ago when they were books and now they're video products. Um, so that, that really changes it. Um, sure. One of the things that, you know, the first thing I do is picking a title and, and you would think I did a bunch of market research or something, but I don't, I have an Apple note with a list of titles in it. And then I look through them and I'm like, yeah, I think it's about time for that one. And that's how I pick the title. I mean, the next one, so there's no secret here, is going to be paperless. You know, the 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 one that started it all was yeah. paperless, but but that was 2012, and it's not a video. It's like a it's an it's a an ebook, and a bunch of this stuff is out of date. I've got to I'm going to redo from the ground up paperless. So that's cool. But you know, I've got this list of titles, and and I just pick one, like the one after that. I'm looking at two titles for the one after that. I don't know which one I'm going to use yet, but we'll figure it out. 
Um, so once I pick a title though, I just start writing down problems that I would like to solve with the app. You know, what are the things that, yeah. what do I want this to do? And then, and I either start with a mind map or an outline and it depends on the content. People get hung up on that. Like, do I use a mind map or an outline to me? You know, the defining bit is chaos. Like if I really don't know where I'm going with it, I do a mind map. And if I have a real clear idea from the beginning, I do an outline. Ultimately, it becomes an outline because it's got a beginning, a middle, and an end. For instance, with the uh, photos field guide, I really didn't know where that was going to go. As I explained during the episode, it really ended up being because there's two platforms. There's iOS and iPad, and there's Mac. I ended up defining the course around platform instead of topic. Mm -hmm. I didn't just know that immediately. I had to put it all on my map and, and think about it and sleep on it until I got there. But at some point, it starts getting some some organization, and then I spend like a month trying things and researching things, and you know, looking at what problems are am I going to solve, what videos do I want to make, and slowly a course builds out of that month of research, and then I move it historically into Airtable. Okay. And the re reason I use Airtable is because it's a collaborative database program. And there's a couple other people that help me as I get towards the end, and I want them to see the status of everything. And in Airtable, I make one where it has uh, each course has multiple sections and then individual videos within those sections. So I define those. And that's always kind of in motion as I go through it. And then I also track in there the run length and the status. The status is like something I'm planning, something I've recorded, something that's in edit, something that's back from edit, you know, you, the usual, mm -hmm. you know, statuses you would imagine. And then like, if there are attachments, there's a checkbox. If I need to make sure I have the attachments for the video and anything I need to do with the production in same thing with the closed captioning. So it's, it's a fairly simple database that lists everything. Uh, there's a cool feature in Airtable where you can organize you can get different views of the same data. So I will organize, first I'll have the course list that's, that keeps it by course organization, but then I'll have the list of views that are like things I still need to record or things that need to be post-production or things that need audio filters or you know any of that stuff. I, I can look at that database and very quickly filter it out. And then I spend months just knocking through that list. You know, I don't do it from top to bottom. I start wherever the heck I feel like it. You know, I woke up and say, hey, today I feel like re recording videos about facial recognition and photos. So I'll spend the day making those videos. And that's kind of how it goes. In terms of the actual recording process, you know, ScreenFlow is the most important tool. Mm -hmm. If I'm recording on Mac, I record straight with Mac and my podcast microphone into ScreenFlow. And I do a lot of the edits in ScreenFlow as well. Um, I do some audio processing then ScreenFlow, like for instance, ScreenFlow has a normalization tool that they've added in the last few releases. That's pretty good. So usually what I do is I normalize the audio and then I back it down to like 80%. So it's not blowing your ears out, but that's nice, nice uh, regular audio. And I get the edits done. I may export the audio and do some additional work in logic. I have a bunch of plugins and things I can do. Same thing. I may export video to um, Final Cut, but Rarely do I do that. Honestly, a lot of that stuff happens in ScreenFlow. Uh, for recording iPad and iPhone, I record the the raw audio with QuickTime. And the reason I do that is because I don't trust ScreenFlow. <laughs> uh, why not? I mean, wh what has happened there in the past? Or is it just a feeling thing? 
Uh, no, it, it is an experience. <laughs> they, um, they have a, uh, a method where you can, you know, use your lightning cable to plug your device in or USB-C and it'll record directly into ScreenFlow off your iOS device. And it works like 85% of the time, <laughs> you know? And one of the ways it fails is because it, it displays on the screen what you see on your iPad or iPhone. So I will look up at the screen and it's working. And then I'll press the record button and then I spend the next somewhere between five and 15 minutes recording a video looking at my iPhone or my iPad. I mean, mm-hmm. you're not looking at the Mac screen. Right. And I will, I will find out that like 30 seconds in or one minute in, it just stopped for whatever reason. And I did all of that work and I didn't capture it. So it's just, you know, that's the worst thing a capture device can do is not capture. Mm-hmm. Um, so QuickTime does a good job of it. So if you open up QuickTime, there's a a movie mode and you can capture your Mac screen or your iOS device. So I capture that with my fancy mic and just save that raw video. Then I import the video into ScreenFlow and work from there. So that that's the way I do iOS. Um, iOS is a pain in the neck because I have to manually add touches and anything you're going to do on the screen um, in terms of you know effects from finger touches you've got to add manually i do a lot of that in screen flow i can also do it in final cut if i need okay has cursor support changed any of that does that can can you pass yes. that through to the video yes it does and in fact with the photos field guide i had to scrap a bunch of video that i recorded on ipad and i went back and re-recorded it once curse because cursor supported showed up kind of in the middle of me doing some of those videos um, because it, it's so great. You know, I mean, the cursor is a little round circle it, looking at the videos in hindsight, the next time I'm going to use some of the more accessibility features where you can like surround the cursor with a bright white line and the, you can do some more stuff to make it more visible. Right. So I learned that lesson. Another question that was in one of the forum threads on this is how I do the titling. Historically, I made them in keynote. Uh, I would re- I would create the titling in Keynote, and then I would run the Keynote while recording ScreenFlow. So I would record the Keynote slides into ScreenFlow, and that would be my titles. Okay. Super, super time. It just took a lot of time to sure. do that. Um, and if I then you'd finish it and you'd say you'd find a typo or something, you'd have to go back and do it all over. So the way I do that now is I've made a slide, an image that is the background, and then I use the ScreenFlow text tool to add text. So I, in essence, create the slide in ScreenFlow. Okay. And I and add a little bit of animation. But everything else that's like instructional in the courses are keynotes. Like if you look at the photos field guide, I did a whole video on um, types of image, you know, image files types. I did one on, you know, best practices for taking pictures. All that stuff were ScreenFlow side, slides that I put together. And Magic Move is your friend when you're making stuff like this. So it, it's a real smooth, you know. And then I would basically perform that presentation while recording audio. And sometimes I have to go back and make an edit here or there, but largely I've kind of got that figured out. So there will be some videos in any course I make that are a bunch of keynote presentations. Mm -hmm. I do it in my videos where if I have a lot of text, like if I'm reading from a quote or a press release, then I will do those in keynote and animate them in keynote if i want some transitions and then i will export it as a video and then just drop that whole video into final cut it's it's a really neat way to sort of combine multiple applications did i ever tell you i met the guy who came up with the idea for magic move Uh uh-uh 
Did you give him yeah, a hug? Because it's awesome. I did. I totally did. We were, um, I was at WWC. I'm not sure if I'm supposed to say this or not, but one of the, <laughs> the um, guys on, I, I wanted to say I work, but it's not really I work anymore. But, you know, the, there's a team at Apple that makes pages, keynote, and mm-hmm. members. And he said, hey, uh, you want to have lunch? And I see the guy all the time. He's a really nice guy. And I'm like, and I'm always looking forward to talking to them about what I like and dislike about the app. And and Katie and I had just recorded a show about uh, Pages, Keynote, Numbers. You know, like, what's the status of Apple? This was two or three years ago. And then well, as at WWC, he texts me and says, is it okay if I bring a couple friends along? I'm like, yeah, that's cool, you know? So I go to this lunch and like like the like it seems like the whole team is there, right? There's mm-hmm. all these guys sitting around. And like, hey, yeah, we listened to your show while we were, you know, we listened to your show you and Katie said we wanted to talk to you more about it. And I and we had, you know how it is, you record a podcast, you kind of forget what you said. And this was like two or three weeks earlier, and I'm like, Oh, what did I say? Right. What did I say? <laughs> was you I know, a it's jerk? Like, <laughs> it's like, you know, and um and then they were asking, but they had really great questions. And like halfway through the lunch, I said, you know, whoever came up with magic movie should double their salary. Mm-hmm. And the guy like across the table from him, he said, Hey, that's me. You know? Yeah, and I'm like, that's cool. if I had known I would have paid for your lunch, I would have paid for your beer. I would have paid for it all, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's, it's awesome. But anyway, so magic move is your friend when you're doing stuff like this and, and you make really cool animations and, and you can drop those in um, some other tricks to, to making these screencasts, is the 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 technique for recording them is just remember that you can make cuts anytime you want. If you run an animation or if you do something with the mouse and you realize you don't like what you just said, the trick is that nothing on the screen moves. You lift your hands off the keyboard and everything, and then you restate it as many times as you need to get it right. Mm-hmm. And you can, in the edit process, you can move the audio over this time when you're moving the mouse and I use mouse, I use uh, voice clicks for this. I've, I've shared this on the show before, but I just make the clicking noise with my mouth. I go like that. Right. Mm-hmm. In fact, I do that sometimes on the, uh, the ad recordings for, for this show. I think you must think I'm crazy, <laughs> but, but that's a way when you're looking at the, uh, the audio file, you can see distinctly where, and I've got a coded system between one and four clicks and each one means a different thing. So that makes the edit process a lot easier. You know, I, I've kind of refined this over the years. Once I get the the video done, then I have um, I have JF Brissett, who's been on this show. He's he's a good friend of mine. He's been on a lot of my podcasts over the years, but he does a lot of the post production for Screencast Online with Don, and he also does it for me. And he watches the videos for me. He's a, he's a, he's a cruel master. That's all I'll say. He sends me back edit points and catches mistakes I made and things like that. So I usually, um, sometimes I'll hire him to do the edits, but usually I just do them myself because I'm the one who made them. It's easier for me to do them, but having him go through and critique it is always very helpful. JF's also a really good audio guy. So if there's a problem with the audio, a lot of times he'll fix that for me too. Well, it's easy when you, when you do projects like this, especially really big ones to not see your own errors and it's good to have another set of set of eyes and ears yeah you have to have somebody else watch it and the funny thing is i've got some people some friends and nerds and people in my life that always say yeah i want to watch the betas i want to see them as they as they populate and i send access to people none of them ever watch them (laughs) you know (laughs) it's like they're all busy you know it's like photos field guide i was an interesting one because i really wanted to make it for people who aren't necessarily mac power users you know, who don't do Apple scripts that want to get better at photos. And 
like my sister, there's a bunch of people in my life that are like what I would call more normal people. Mm -hmm. I try to get them in early to watch them, to give me critique. None of them watched it. You know? So anyway, so I've got that going as, as they get produced and I'm updating the air table, then I start uploading them. And the platform I use for this is teachable. Uh, teachable is, you know, the one I chose. There's a bunch of different, you know, uh, learning systems online. Uh, Rosemary Orchard and I at one point talked about her kind of creating a WordPress installation for me with a custom one, but I didn't want to make something where I had to have a full-time developer to keep it running. Sure. Teachable. I like, because like they collect the taxes and they pay the taxes for you. Like, I don't understand value added tax in Europe. I, you know, they take care of that stuff for me. I pay them a, a lot of money every year, but it's okay. And they manage all this stuff for me in the back end and they keep it largely going. Occasionally there are some problems. I don't like the fact that, um, students of the school have a teachable login and occasionally they, they lose their credential and they write me and say, Hey, can you reset my password? I can't, I don't even have access to that mm -hmm. stuff. So then I have to like, usually I'll just have them make a new account and then I manually move it over for them. And, okay. uh, you know, but so there's some stuff I have to do that, that isn't perfect, but I think teachable by and large has been a good decision for me and I'm sticking with them for the duration. I'm not going to make my students move platforms again. And it's, it's been fine. So, you know, that happens. I get everything loaded into Teachable. And then the other pieces I used towards the end, um, uh, Leilani, who helps me out with a lot of stuff, she does a lot of the customer support stuff. She helps, you know, make sure the course is in Teachable correctly. Like it follows the Airtable in terms of order and things like that. I One of the smarter moves I made um, when I moved over to Teachable is I got a, an account with ConvertKit, which is where the newsletter goes through. So when you buy one of the books, if you opt in, um, you get put on a list that says this person bought that book. So when I make an update, I can send an email to just the people who bought that course and let them know what's going on. The, the customer support end of it, and there's always a lot of it after I have a new release, uh, I do along with Leilani and Text Expander. You know, that, that's a big help too. Oh, yeah. The, uh, and the last piece of this whole thing, and this is the one that I really need that I'm least adequate at is, is marketing these things. You know, they come out, I talk about it on the podcast. I do a blog post and that's kind of it. And I know I'm supposed to be marketing. I think they're good enough courses that they could find an audience bigger than just the Mac power users, but I have no idea how to get them there. Steven. Oh, it's, <laughs> it's know? really hard. I mean, we were looking, I was looking through this Google doc over the weekend and you know, we've had those conversations at relay about like, how do we get our podcast out in front of a bigger audience? And, you know, we've tried some things and it's it's just hard to advertise this sort of stuff, right? Because it's yeah. it's just tricky and it's not on a platform that is built for people stumbling across it, right? It's not like it's on yeah. YouTube, right? And someone could just randomly search white iPhone 4 and they see my latest video or the algorithm yeah. suggested to them, right? Podcast and standalone stuff like this just doesn't work that way. So it is it is really really hard to, to get it right. Uh, what have you tried in the past, if anything? So, so every time I release a new one, I put a generous sample out, you know, it's like the, the photos course was six hours. The sample was like 40 minutes. So, I mean, for some people that's an entire course is 40 minutes. Yeah. Um, so I put that on YouTube and that brings in some people from the outside. You know, I have been for the last four or five months been paying Twitterific 
And if you have Twitter Ethic, you'll see ads for my field guides occasionally pop up on the bottom. And Twitter Ethic's a company I like. It's you know a product I support, and I don't feel you know um, everybody everybody tells me you just got to do Facebook ads. And I just don't want to give money to Facebook. I mean, there's a reason why we took the forums off Facebook. I mean, everything I learn about Facebook reinforces the idea that I don't want to make help make Facebook better. And I've not done Facebook ads and everybody's telling me that it's costing me a lot of money. And yeah, but I I just, I can't see myself doing it. I I don't know. Maybe I'm being a jerk or, uh, or selfish. I don't know, but uh, same thing. Um, Instagram, I think, would be a good match for some of the stuff I make, but they're owned by Facebook. You know? mm-hmm. So I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do. I, I bought a bunch of Seth Gooden books I'm going to read during my sabbatical. <laughs> so maybe I'll have a brilliant insight all of a sudden. He, he has good ideas. But, you know, I I want to be genuine yeah. and I don't want to be you know, skeevy, but I would like to make some more money off of these because they're a lot of work. But, yeah, yeah. The, um, but uh, I don't know. That's, that's a part of it I, I haven't figured out yet. But the, the production process, I, I'm pretty refined. It Like paperless is already rolling. I'm already in the, that that one is an outline at this point and I'll be building up the, uh, the air table before long. And I don't think it's going to take me six months to get that one out the door. Well, I think you should uh, try the photos one on Instagram. That's like the most hand in hand fitment you're ever going to get as far as the content and the platform. So I think, I think it's worth a shot. I've dabbled in Instagram ads in the past just to kind of see what it was. I picked a video or something and, and you know, it's all very easy to do and you just give them the assets you want. And I think if you're going to experiment photos field guide on Instagram makes the most sense to me. Yeah. Well, it is for all the things I've made. It is the one that is the most crossover title. Yeah, totally. Like you're not going to give your mom a copy of the shortcuts field guide, but but you might. In fact, that the photos field guide of all the ones I've ever sold has the most people writing me about gifting it because that's cool. One thing teachable doesn't have a system for gifting it. So I, I I just give somebody a one-time link that gets them a free. Okay thing but it's like i've got to process it i it, it can't happen through the the te- the teachable platform that's i've got a ticket into them on that but anyway that's that's it uh the kimono has been opened um i enjoy making them and it's fun and the process part of it the fun for me is actually kind of refining the process as we'll talk about later and things we're playing with i may be moving off Airtable real soon but it's cool yeah, no, it's it's neat to hear how you do it. And I think that a lot of people are going to be excited to see the paperless one get revamped. I know that comes up in the forum sometimes. Is that yeah, one? I remember when it, it came it. out. <laughs> it's a long time ago now. Yeah. yeah, I know. It was the best book of Apple iBookstore in 2012. Hey. But that was a long time ago. Uh, yeah. <laughs> maybe maybe take that off the, the website. It's a, well, it's a long yeah. time ago. <laughs> yeah, it's a while ago. <laughs> This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Setup. More than 180 powerful apps for your Mac. Try it for a week. Use the link in our show notes to let them know you heard about it here on the Mac Power Users. Just recently, I got an email from a friend who's also a listener who said, basically, he couldn't believe that he never tried Setup until we had mentioned it on a recent episode. And now he feels like it was the best tip he got out of Mac Power Users all year. I get that. Setup is, you know, like the Netflix but for Mac apps, you sign up for setup and you can get all the apps you need. 
there's an app for everything these days, and some are excellent and some are not so excellent. And a great way to discover new quality apps and get all the tools you need to be successful and productive is by using Setup, a subscription for the Mac apps. Setup packs over 180 apps into one. There's an app for almost any task, so you can stay in your flow and finish what you started. Setup has a dedicated curation team that only selects the highest quality apps, which means you don't have to spend time searching for great tools. It's just such a great value. Instead of paying thousands of dollars for separate app licenses, you pay just one flat monthly fee, and new apps are added regularly and updates are free. And all the apps are their fully featured pro versions. They don't give you anything crippled or things that make you give them extra money. It's it's a fully featured app and they work. They're great. Head over to setapp.com to try setapp free for a week. If you like it, pay just $9.99 per month for as long as it's useful to you. And it will be. I signed up as soon as they started. I'm still a subscriber. And you want to have a problem? I go into setup and they've got an app for me. Once again, go to setapp.com to see how it fits in with your workflow our thanks to Setup for their support of this show and all of Real AFM. Go to the link in the show notes, sign up, and start getting some great quality apps for just 10 bucks a month. So the next thing in our doc says dictation testing. Uh, I don't know what you've done here, so wh- what have you done? <laughs> well, this started with John Gruber had a post linking uh, a um, an interesting video somebody made where they put an Android phone next to an iPhone And it was a great way to do a test because you could have them literally sitting next to each other and dictate the exact same voice. And the Android phone was running circles around the iPhone, you know, and the way it was doing that was the responsiveness, you know, the, if you dictate, you need to get feedback that your words are getting accepted or you start to question whether it's working at all. Um, This is one of the big problems with Siri, frankly, is that you start talking to it and if you don't know if it's working or not, you start feeling like an idiot the longer you speak. And there's nothing worse than sitting there and talking three sentences and then having it say, hey, I'm sorry, I don't have an internet connection. I can't help you right now, right? Mm-hmm. And Siri does that once in a while. So so this video got me thinking about, you know, where does Apple stand with voice-to-text dictation? This is a kind of a running pet thing for me because I use voice-to-text dictation every day. And largely, I use the Apple tools because that's what I've got available to me. And uh, the video shows that, you know, Android's better. Yeah. In fact, it was so much better that it got me thinking, wow, should I be buying like a little Android tablet or something that I could just use for dictation and then, you know, make some kind of automation to send myself the text? And then I realized I was making things way too complicated. <laughs> uh, later, the guy who made that video had posted that if you turn on, he put his phone in airplane mode. Uh, so it stopped phoning home. He said it worked just as fast. The iPhone worked just as fast as the Android phone. I tried it both ways. So I, I ran a test with, you know, it connected to the internet and I ran a test with it with airplane mode on. It, they The speed seemed about the same on both of them for me. And frankly, on both of them, it was more responsive than it was in the video. So maybe I have a faster internet connection than he did. Maybe Apple's, cloud servers were working better that day. You know, there's so many variables here. I don't know what they are. Uh, But I do think it's clear that Apple is not as good as Google at getting words and turning them into text. And I hope that they fix that. And that led me down another path uh, over on the Mac, you know, putting aside the iPhone for a minute. So we had Dragon for Mac for the longest time. Mm -hmm. 
And last year they announced they're going to stop supporting the Mac and everybody couldn't figure out why. And then like two months later, WWDC, Apple said, hey, we've got this new mode where basically we've got Dragon built into the operating system. You know, you can control the Mac, you can enter text, you can correct text, you can you know, do most of the features that are available on Dragon. And now it ships on every Mac, iPhone and iPad. I was very excited about that because I love that tool and I would love to see it everywhere, you know, working all the time. And, um, so it's been a year. So I ran a test and I published a YouTube video on it, um, uh, where I tested dragon, which is now a non-supported application, but still works in Catalina against the, uh, the Mac OS 10, um, or I'm sorry, Mac OS text to speech engine and dragon is better still. It was kind of the same experience. Like one of the things I did was I read some Obi-Wan quotes because that's what you do. Sure. And the <laughs> um and I did them in the exact same cadence. I couldn't do the thing like they did on the video that I originally saw because there's no way to run Dragon dictating into one window and text-to-speech dictating in another window because there's really only one active window at right. any time on your Mac. Yeah. So, but I did the exact same cadence and I recorded them within seconds of each other. You know, I just switched over. Yeah. So as close as you could get it to being. Yeah. And I put them on the screen next to each other. If you watch the video, you can see them dictating at the same time. And the difference is Dragon is a little more accurate. But I think the bigger problem is the Mac OS ten. I keep saying that, Stephen. The Mac <laughs> OS text-to-speech engine would only put it up one paragraph at a time. Like I would say a whole paragraph before I'd see any text on the screen. Do you think it, do you get the sense that it's waiting and, and correcting? So what it puts up is correct as opposed to having to go back and change it in front of your eyes. Yeah. And I think it's waiting for a pause. Um, the way these machines work, the, the, the algorithms work is they're looking at every word around every other word. And that really helps increase the accuracy. So the lo- the bigger sample they have, the more accurate it is, but it took, it, you know, it was waiting for a whole paragraph and still the accuracy wasn't as good as on dragon, which was giving me things more kind of on a sentence by sentence basis. Now, Google in the few experiences I've had with Google dictation is getting almost every word up as I say it, and it may go back and fix a word once in a while, but having that immediate feedback is I think the ideal solution. That's where we need to be. Yeah, that makes sense. It's one of those things that Apple's method even though it is slower, it makes it probably feel even slower than it actually is, right? Because you're kind of, you're sitting there for a second waiting for it to do its thing and that makes it perceive longer amount of time, if you will. Well, it's also it's also distracting. Yeah. I mean, I'm sitting there dictating to my computer and I'm now getting into my third sentence and nothing has appeared on the screen. And instead of focusing on the words I'm saying, there's a sub routine that just started saying, is this thing even on? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Subroutine in the brain. Anyway, um, I, I think the uh, I think Apple need you know the, the bottom line is Apple needs to increase accuracy, increase speed, and another peeve of mine is that they don't have an iCloud shared database of of custom words, right? And that needs to be fixed. I mean, that's obvious, right? I mean, if I add the word Obi Wan Kenobi on one, it should appear on all of them. Totally. Yeah, that's that's wild that it's not there. Yeah, I, I, it's a first year. I, I'm not super critical on this because I think this is hard. But I also, I think it's clear that they have work to do. And I hope that, you know, somebody there is working on it. 
I hope that I get asked to a lunch someday at WWC with a bunch of people. They're like, yeah, we want to make it better. Yeah. <laughs> you out there? Listen, listen to David. He cares about it more than anyone. <laughs> Call me. I have ideas. Mm-hmm. I have ideas. It's hard. Uh, the, the Google stuff is promising, though, and I do think that it's only a matter of time before Apple catches up because this is an accessibility thing, and Apple does actually put a lot of time and effort into accessibility stuff. So I wouldn't be surprised if it's better this year. I'm not sure if we'll get to the Google level immediately, but but you know the the end is in sight where you'll just talk to your computer and be able to rely on it. It's the, I mean, it's the dream for decades, right? But you know, I think I but I think we're closing in on it. It, it. It's remarkably good now. One of the other things I, I talked about this on the show in the past, and I heard from somebody um, on the inside. Um, not necessarily at Apple, but somebody who has a lot of knowledge about this, who said one of the big differences that, you know, Dragon has a training file. When you sign up for Dragon, you actually dictate a bunch of stuff into it and it builds a training file on your voice. And Apple is taking the approach of saying, well, we don't need a training file, you know, and I think that that impacts, you know, the accuracy at least, not necessarily the speed. So, you know, but, you know, the goal they have is that you'll be able to pick up any device you want and just talk to it and get your text in. And I, I don't know, I can't help but feel like we're getting pretty close to that. Cause I remember how bad it was 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. I, this is a journey I've been on since the beginning. And it's like, like I said in the YouTube video, I, I feel like Apple is like 90% of the way, but the last 10% makes a huge difference. Do you do that much at all? Do you do any dictation? Uh, hardly any. What I do is on my phone, usually into notes or something like that, just to get something out quick. But I rarely do any on my Mac. It's such a game changer for me to like in the morning when I do my initial kind of flip through OmniFocus, anything in there that is a quick, like short email or short letter, I just leave drafts open and I dictate into it as I go through the OmniFocus thing. And I'll dictate the the event, whatever it is, you know, the text, the email, whatever. And then if it's like a legal thing, I'll dictate the billing entry. And if it's a Max Sparky thing, I'll do a rough blog post entry. And I just, I get through that in like a half hour and I knock like, you know, you know, 10 things off my list for the day. Mm-hmm. And there's something about being able to, to speak them as opposed to pick up a keyboard that means I just do it way faster. And I get that I have to go back and do an edit and all that, but it still just feels way more productive to me. Yeah. Okay. I need to, I need to spend some time with it. I feel like at some point you're going to challenge me to do that for like a week. All right. Not yet though. (laughs) Not yet. Not this week. Maybe after WWC. I really hope that this year Apple says, Oh yeah, we, we made it way better. Just wait and see. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's the, that's the kind of thing that leads me down the path of madness of putting betas on my Macs. Oh, I know the promise of better dictation. Mm hmm. So uh, you've been having some weird problems. You're, you're just, this is the David catching up with David show. Uh, yeah, I guess. I'm sorry. Well, I, I thought it'd be fun to start a new segment on these feedback shows called Weird Problems. Okay. Because of your experience. And I've got the first one. I like it. So what, what's going on? So if you've got a weird problem, let us know for the next feedback show. So I've had this ongoing issue with my Mac where I open a YouTube video I hit play and it zips through the whole thing in like a second or two. And it starts playing the next one that YouTube throws at me and it plays through that in a second or two. And it's like this endless loop of videos being played. 
with a with a massive fast forward turned on. Have you ever seen anything like that? Uh, I have not. Is this in any browser or is it just Safari? Well, let me tell you what I did okay. for my uh, for my uh, my bug. You know, how did I debug this? Uh, first, I thought, well, it's probably a YouTube thing. So I I closed Safari, quit Safari, and restarted. Did the same thing, okay? So then I copied the link and I opened Chrome. If YouTube's going to work in anywhere, it's going to work in the Chrome browser. Still did the same, <laughs> right? Right. Still did the same thing, you know. And then I decided, well, maybe it is a YouTube thing. So I tried some Vimeo video. Same thing. So I realized, okay, this is deeper than a problem with YouTube or a specific browser. So I did, you know, the thing they tell you on the IT crowd. I turned it off and on again, right? I just rebooted the Mac. It still did it. Hmm. What do you do at that point, Mr. Genius? What do you do at that point? You just buy a Dell. Let's move on. I I guess, right? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I would try another user on the computer. um, See if it's something funky going on in my user folder. That'd probably be the next step. Yeah, I, well, I, I went to Google and search and somebody else had written about the problem saying this is fairly common and it's a core audio problem. So that gave me, I, I don't know how core audio was doing this, but I guess that would make sense because it was fast forwarding through the, I, I don't know, you know, it doesn't make any sense. But so my ultimate solution was I opened up Activity Monitor and I looked at, at all the core audio entries in Activity Monitor. Mm-hmm. And there's one called Core Audio D, which I assume it means the demon yeah. for Core Audio. And that's the one that was using the most cycles. So I forced quit it. And I went into YouTube and it worked fine. So I solved the problem. That was my weird problem. Oh, that's not so bad. I thought you were like yeah. reinstalling the OS at two o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Hey, I want to talk about that. I heard you saying on another podcast that you recently reinstalled the OS on your Mac. I did. Yeah. So I, I think I spoke about maybe in our last feedback show, I was having some issues with finder copies and I ended up removing all the finder preferences out of my home folder. And that took care of most of it. But I've been having like weird issues where it wanted to update the firmware on my video card, but it wouldn't ever actually do it. I was still having some issues in finder getting the beach ball kind of in random places. And I had, I've migrated, I don't know how many computers over how many years. Now that still had a clean OS on it when I got the computer, right? I just migrated my user and all my applications. And I I tried kind of fixing it piece by piece. And I finally said, look, it's not that hard to reinstall Mac OS. You can do it from the recovery partition really easily. And so I took, you know, whatever it was, the hour or so, to reinstall Mac OS and it has really cleaned up almost all the problems I was having. I still have a little bit of an issue where sometimes when I wake up the Mac pro, the display doesn't wake up. And sometimes I do that. And then it has spawned like multiple virtual desktops. I don't know if those things are related. They feel like they're related. Um, but in talking with other Mac pro owners, the other three of us, it seems like the Mac pros don't sleep and wake super well, depending on, what you have inside of them. And so I've actually just set mine not to go to sleep anymore. And, uh, and that seems to have fixed it by avoiding the issue. So you just have it turn, turn off the monitor. Yeah. Yeah. And then that seems to wake the monitor back up just fine. And which is fine too, because I actually do keep it running as a file server. So sometimes in the evenings I need something off of it and don't want to come out here to the office, but it's uh, so far it's been okay. You know, I don't know if it's because, it's a machine that I can put things in and out of. You know, I changed my video card out. I don't know what 
triggered it, but it was just, just enough weird things where I decided, well, let me reinstall the OS. And if that doesn't do it, you know, I was prepared to basically do a clean install, like take a weekend and totally rebuild it. But thankfully I didn't have to do that because I have a lot of applications and a lot of settings and stuff that would just take a long time to put back together. Now, when you said reinstall Mac OS, the first time I heard it, I just assumed you meant nuke and pave. And I'm like, no, I did not. Mackerel, this guy nuke and pave because he wasn't entirely happy. Yeah. So explain for the listeners what you did, you know, what steps you take to reinstall a Mac OS without a nuke and pave. Yeah. So in the old days, this was called an archive and install that Apple has moved away from that language. Uh, And I'll put a a link in the show notes to the uh, knowledge base article about this insert bell ringing here, I guess. But um, it is a, a pretty new feature with the macOS recovery partition. So you can boot your Mac up into recovery mode, and you have a couple of options. You can reinstall the latest version of macOS that was on the Mac. That's what I chose. You can upgrade to the latest version that is compatible with your Mac, or you can install the version that came with your Mac when it was new. Well, my machine's basically brand new. It can only run Catalina, so I just chose to reinstall the latest version. Uh, it installs it from that recovery partition. It still took a, a while, you know, even on an SSD machine, but when you re-log in, all your stuff is still in place. You're just replacing the operating system, the applications, and your user folder, you know, where all your documents and mail and settings and pictures and everything are. They're all left untouched. Uh, you can do a full, what you're calling a nuke and pave, where you boot up, and you tell it before to install it to erase the drive. I did not do that. Uh, thankfully, it didn't come to that. Or I could just reinstall macOS itself, log in, and all my stuff is still in place. And so far, it's been several weeks, and it's the machine's run better than it ever has, honestly. That's good to know. I mean, if someone's having problems, mm-hmm. it's an hour investment as opposed to a weekend investment. Yeah. Yeah, so that seems to have taken care of it. And I think that... uh it's, you know, it's a new, it's a brand new computer from Apple, right? And the ability to swap things in now, it just feels way more complicated than any other Mac. And so I wasn't particularly surprised to have some issues, you know, buying something brand new, but it's really running pretty well at this point, besides the occasional sleep-wake issues. And and that could be something I just haven't chased down, right? I have a USB-C hub attached to it. I've got audio stuff attached to it. And the more complicated your setup is, the more likely you are to have sleep-wake issues. This used to be a lot more true than it is now. So I could probably troubleshoot the sleep-wake stuff some more, but I'm happy to just leave the machine on at idle. It's fine. And just have the display go to sleep after a while. I, I know a lot of Mac owners that are very proud that they use Migration Assistant for, you know, 15 years or whatever. Yeah. And I just, that's just not me, honestly. I, I think it's great. Migration Assistant is awesome because you set up a new Mac and it brings everything over. But I do think you build up cruft over time, even mm-hmm. on a Mac. And once in a while, a nuke and pave or a reinstall is not a bad idea. Yeah, it can be uh, a useful tool. And and look, I've migrated tons, right? It's it's something that I'm comfortable doing, and it's worked well for me for a long time. But sometimes you run into these issues, and you've got to uh, straighten things out a little bit. No big deal. Yeah, you know, returning to the hypothetical normal user, as we were talking about earlier, like family members, I always use migration assistant for them because mm-hmm. I know they will they will never get it back to where they want it. <laughs> you know, if they don't, you just don't migrate them. But you know, for people who like to really kind of get into the weeds, I don't know. I, I don't mind rebuilding once in a while. 
Although my Mac's running fine, so I'm not going to be reinstalling anything. It's good. All right. Well, let us know your weird problems. We'll include that in a future segment. Okay. Yeah, I like that. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by the IntraZone by Microsoft SharePoint. It's a podcast from Microsoft where they get into the ins and outs of developing SharePoint, which is massive, as I'm sure you know, in the corporate world to build intranets for companies and businesses. And I've really enjoyed listening to it. SharePoint's not something that I've used in a long time, but to hear the thinking that goes into creating software is always really interesting to me. They do these great conversations and interviews talking about the features they're rolling out, how people use them. And it makes me wish that other big tech companies had this sort of visibility into it. I've enjoyed exploring this one. It's always fun to find new podcasts. These interviews are wide ranging. You get guest experts behind the scenes and out in the field. So you can see how SharePoint can fit into everyday work life to easily share and manage content, knowledge, and applications across your business. Each show covers a bunch of segments like news, a focused topic for the week, guest perspectives, FAQs, and more. Uh, I just listened to an episode about Microsoft Lists, which is a feature they've had, but now they're kind of spinning it out into something bigger. And again, the thought that goes into making these tools that millions of people use is a really fascinating thing to listen to. Go and listen to it now. Just search the IntraZone wherever you get your podcast. That's I-N-T-R-A-Z-O-N-E, or just click the link in the show notes. Our thanks to IntraZone by Microsoft SharePoint for their support of this show and Relay FM. So we got a lot of feedback about the email show. We did. Uh, and we had we had some stuff that we just cut for time. We were recording that it was already long. And so there was kind of a chunk of stuff that we were going to hold to this week. And so we apologize for sort of splitting this up. But yeah, I think it, overall it was it was a, a really good episode. We just got some stuff to follow up on now. Yeah, I, I think we were smart with the apps we chose. You know, Airmail and Spark are very commonly used with listeners, so I'm glad that we we covered them. I'm also really glad we went to people who use them full time mm-hmm. uh, for that part of the show. But first, just acknowledgement that there's a big part of our audience that are Spark and Airmail enthusiasts. But we didn't give enough love to MailMate. We mentioned it, but um, it's it's uh, there's a lot of users that are deep into MailMate, and I can kind of get that. It's like the uh, the Mac Mail app that it's kind of old school. Although the, their user interface is a lot better than it used to be, you know. But it's IMAP, plain text, and Markdown. If you like Markdown, this is a great Mail mm-hmm. app for you. And um, something I think everybody would agree to is that their search is probably uh, one of the fastest out there. Yeah, and you can combine the search with filters and smart folders. So what's cool about MailMate is you can basically kind of build anything you want in it. So if you don't want a traditional inbox and folders, but you want a bunch of smart folders and tags and have them cross-populate, you can kind of build your own system on top of IMAP in MailMate. Yeah, they have some features that Apple Mail doesn't have, like Send Later. Yeah, so you can you can write an email and using natural language processing tell MailMate to send it at you know, nine a.m. This was something that I used a whole lot when I used MailPlane for my work email. Sometimes I would reply to emails after hours, but I didn't want my clients to know that. I wanted them to get it in the morning because I didn't want them to think they could call me at seven p.m. And so I would sometimes queue up emails to go up at you know nine o five, nine ten, nine fifteen in the morning, so it looked like I just got to them first thing the next day. And you can replicate that in MailMate, which is really cool. 
Yeah, I still do that in Apple Mail. It's either Mail Tags or Mail Act on. I'm not sure which plugin gives me that ability, but I use it for the exact same reason. If I'm answering, you know, uh, uh, mail to opposing counsel on legal stuff, I do not want to set a precedent for like 10 p.m. mail. So it goes out the next day at yeah. the start of business. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also extensible. We talked a lot about that, especially with airmail, where you can share messages out to things like OmniFocus. Mailmate gives you those tools. And there's a really good review. Uh, Andrew from the forums wrote it, and uh, we have a link to it in the show notes. If you kind of want to dig deeper into Mailmate and see how someone's using it, uh, I think that this is a great place to start. It also has a generous trial, so you can you can download Mailmate and use it for quite a while before you end up paying. It's it's forty nine US dollars if you want it, but you can go in there and set it up and and get it kind of humming along for you before you uh, chip in the fifty bucks. Yeah, uh, Outlook uh, also got a lot of support uh, among the listeners. I guess so. You're using Outlook with Gmail now? Yeah. So after the the episode, uh, I wanted to spend some more time with Outlook. So I downloaded it on my phone. I plugged in my uh, personal Gmail account. It was just like the first one and one password. So it's the one that went in it. Yeah. And I got to say, I'm really liking it. The design is really clean. It has uh, calendar functionality with Gmail. It pulls in your contacts as well. And what's cool about it, I think we mentioned this, but if we didn't, I wanted to make sure we covered it here, is Outlook, as, a, as are a lot of these other mail apps doing now, you can hook them up to cloud storage. So I have it set up to Google Drive and Dropbox. So I don't have to, you know, go to Dropbox and copy a link or deal with the files app or something. It's just kind of built in directly to Outlook. So I can very quickly attach something. I can send a link to something on, on my Google Drive. I can save things from emails back to those those services. Uh, it's really nice. I don't think it's something I think I'm gonna end up staying in mail because uh, I like the native app experience, but if you're looking for something a little more that isn't that isn't Airmail or Spark, that just feels like a, a built-in mail client with some more features, I think Outlook is probably where I would start. Actually, unless you know you want something that Airmail or Spark offer, offers, if you just want something a little bit nicer, uh, Outlook is pretty solid. Now, if you use iCloud for your email, it's just going to use the contacts and calendars on your phone. It doesn't seem to pull those into Outlook like it does with Gmail. So that may be an issue depending on how your device is set up. But with Gmail or with Office 365 or something like that, I think it's a, a really good contender. Yeah, I mean, it's, a, you know, just this full disclosure, Microsoft is sponsoring this episode. And there's a sentence I thought I'd never say. But the, <laughs> um, they really have done a good job of, I mean, they've changed their culture or whatever to the extent that they are really interested in making quality uh mac and ios apps these days and particularly i think on iphone and ipad they are just like they're delivering it you know i as someone who uses microsoft word every day on my ipad it's a good app and of course outlook is going to get that same degree of love and attention plenty of listener feedback for sanebox uh, another sponsor is a full disclosure yada 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 but it's nice having cloud-based rules and that's another way to, to create them for yourself there's a lot of people who wrote in about segregating accounts based on context. Um, Kirk was one of the first ones to write in the forums about this, and he's really into genealogy. So he has a separate email account for everything he does on genealogy research, which is an interesting kind of way to go around it. I, I probably would just do a smart mailbox, 
But if you really want to, you know, segregate these things, make a separate email. It's not hard to make additional emails, right? So it could be uh, sparky genealogy at gmail.com. And then everything, you know, all of my correspondence on that is in that one account. Another trick with that is to, if you're in Gmail and some other platforms, you can do a trick where you do a plus symbol and then a word after your email. So say that your email is david at gmail.com. You could do david plus work at gmail.com and you could build filters based on uh, where those emails come to. So I know a lot of people do this with newsletters. So they may do david plus newsletters at Gmail. They use that email when they sign up to newsletters and they can filter the messages coming to the address and do different things with them. So you don't have to even open a full separate email account if you don't want to. Uh, likewise, a lot of services, including iCloud, offer aliases. So you could use an alias for something and then uh, you know, be able to, to sort of pipe that out to different things. They work for, in very similar ways. So th- there are a lot of options there. Uh, I'm a big believer in separating out emails. So I have three. I've got my personal one. I have my Relay FM email. And then I have one for, uh, you know, the business that oversees 512 Pixels and a couple other you know, my freelance projects and things like that. So it is, uh, like I said, I'm a big believer in separating those those things out. Yeah, I do the same thing. I have one for the the lawyer hat, one for the Sparky hat, and one for personal. Mm-hmm. And that works fine. And, and also a little more heavy handed, but... Uh, smart rules and Apple mail and some of these other apps like spark where you can put smart rules together. It's not that difficult to put together a smart rule that can categorize stuff. One of the tricks is you look at like recipients. If there's something that like you're constantly corresponding with the same people on the subject, like if you have a genealogy website you go to, you could make a rule that just matches that and holding down the option key while you create those rules allows you to set conditionals so a good way to do it would be any of the following, like it comes from the genealogy website or the subject includes the word genealogy or the body includes the word genealogy. You start, you know, putting together these rules. And like I said, this is a little bit more time consuming to set them up, but the smart rules, once you set them up are, are usually pretty good, uh, easy way to collect this stuff into one place. And you can fold those up in the sidebar in Apple mail. So you don't have to see them all the time, but when you want them, they're there. Yeah. And the only, the only big downside to that, as we mentioned in the show, is those aren't over on the iPhone and iPad. So um, that's kind of a bummer. Mm-hmm. So following the show, you guys got me tempted talking to Mike and listening to Rosemary, you know, thinking, oh, okay, I need Spark or Airmail. They're going to solve all my problems. So I spent some time over the last week using both of them. Um, I probably should have done this before we recorded the show, but the, uh, you know how it is, right? But the, uh, Airmail is more stable than I represented last week. They're, they're doing better at that. So they have got better since the last time I used it, which is good. Spark is, is great. And, um, and I still went back to Apple mail <laughs> because ultimately uh, the Apple scripts and the automation stuff I've done on the Mac, uh, just, there's nothing that can match that for me right now. It's like I chose a lesser experience on iPhone and iPad over more automation on Mac. That's kind of what it boiled down to for me. That's fair. I mean, it, these things aren't for everybody. And and I, like you, am an Apple Mail purist, I think. Yeah, I'm not. I'm ready to abandon it if something's better. But, you know, there isn't really anything better. And the, the thing Apple Mail does give me is Apple Script and plugins. So 
when you start mm-hmm. adding some of these plugins in Apple Script, I know it's like this Frankenstein thing you have to put together because the native app doesn't have enough for me. But um, when you combine, you know, this concoction of Apple Script, SaneBox, you know, plugins and Apple Mail, suddenly I have an email system that works for me and it's hard for me to leave it. Yeah, that makes to- total sense to me, man. So what are you playing with these days, Stephen? Anything new and exciting in your life? Uh, yeah, I've got an app that I wanted to talk about. It is uh, brand new. It's called uh, Pastel from our friend uh, Steve Trouton-Smith. And what this app is, it's, it's on the iPhone and iPad, I should say. There's a Mac version coming soon. But it is uh, an app for managing color palettes. So if you have a design project or if you're like me, you kind of oversee some brand stuff then you can build these palettes and know, you know, what colors have been approved, what colors go with certain things. So a big thing for us is all of our podcasts have their show art color, but they also have what's called the key color, which is if you go to the CMS or the website for Relay, the upgrade page is colored differently than the connected page, which is colored differently from the Mac Power Users page. And I've just kept all of that sort of in an Apple note for a long time. But with uh, this application, I could go in there and build collections and build palettes. And so I can say, okay, this is what, you know, upgrades colors are. So if we're going to do something with upgrade, I need to know what color red it is and what color silver and what color blue, et cetera. And what's cool about this is you can actually drag and drop colors from this app into other apps. So Pages, Keynote, and MindNode support this, uh, along with a bunch of other smaller apps. And so you could kind of build your color set that you want to use across your projects and make them, you know, uniform across a bunch of different things. And uh, so it's really cool. I've linked in uh, in it, uh, in the show notes to it on the app store, uh, Steve Trout Smith, an amazing developer, a friend of ours. Uh, and this is a really useful tool for those of us who deal with these sorts of things uh, at work. How did I miss this apps? Yeah. I, I didn't know this app was out there. Yeah. It's I cool. like, for the field guide covers, I didn't mention, I made a template a few years ago in OmniGravel. Mm-hmm. And if you look at them, they've got kind of like a reverse triangle at the top and at the bottom, and then an icon in the middle with the Futura font. But I changed the colors for each one. I've searched the internet for interesting color combinations and screenshotted them everywhere I find them. Yeah, And I've got this Apple note full of these color palettes that I may want to use with future guides. And mm-hmm. it's completely nonsense the way I do it. This is going to solve this problem. Yeah, so you could import those photos and sample the colors and just have them in pastel. And it all syncs across all your devices with CloudKit, so you could have them everywhere. All right, so problem solved. Yay. There you go. Um, the, uh, so what I've been doing, I've talked a lot over the last couple of years about Basecamp. I'm a fan of the Basecamp app. I think that I really like the company and I like what they stand for. But I also kind of like the way they've, built this collaboration tool in a way that's not creepy, but also very useful. So a couple of years ago, I had the idea of this would be great for the law practice. If I had base camp projects for individual client stuff where I could invite the clients into a project, but then of course the clients wouldn't see other projects with other clients, which would be very bad. So Basecamp has got an architecture that allows me to do that. And uh, it's not inexpensive though. And I'm heading towards my renewal on it. And I started looking at how many clients were actually engaging in Basecamp. And it was less than 10%. So it just, you know, it. I learned the lesson that if you're providing a service to people, asking them to sign up to a specific website or app 
as part of the service you provide is not something that they're usually interested in doing. Sure. It's kind of surprising because a lot of my clients are app developers and technology people, but they just, you know, they've never bought into it. So it wasn't worth, it's not worth renewing because there's not enough people using it. So I, I'm switching over to Dev and Think, which is another sponsor. So sorry, but I did it before I even knew they were going to sponsor us. But so I'm switching a bunch of the data storage to Dev and Think, but I still, there were some collaboration parts of, um, to Basecamp, like with uh, Leilani, the person who helps me on a lot of stuff, we have all these tasks that we share in Basecamp and like a collaborative task management and project management. Airtable is another one where we collaborate. And I got thinking, well, wouldn't it be nice if I could still have those tools without paying the Basecamp fee? You know, I, it's just Basecamp. I'm not using Basecamp in a way that justifies its expense, but I'm sure there's another tool that would work for it. And I wanted to find something where I could combine all that into one place. So for the last three weeks, I've been actively testing Notion. And there's a bunch of listeners that are into Notion. It comes up on the forums once in a while. There's some people who run their whole lives out of Notion. It's kind of like this open form. What's the way to put it? You can do task management. You can keep notes. You can collaborate with other people. You can do databases and calendars. Um, it a little bit reminds me of um, Circus Pony's Notebook. You know, remember that app years ago? Kind of a jack of all trades, mm -hmm. but it does a lot of different things. None of them are like like task management in it is not as powerful as OmniFocus task management, or you know, like writing in it isn't. It's not like Microsoft Word writing, and but you can do a lot of those types of things, and it's got some wiki elements to it, but you know, the big sell on it is collaboration and basic tools. And so I've set it up and I'm actually really impressed with it. So um, I've been able to recreate the same databases that I used to make in Airtable in Notion, but I can also have running task lists and documents. Um, Leilani, another thing she helps me out with is she proofreads posts that go up on Max Sparky and gets them up for me. The ones that have typos in it are the ones that I don't get to her. So just so you know, <laughs> yeah, uh, but I can like send that stuff to notion to her. So I, you know, notion is something that's always been on my radar, but I never really had a use for, but I really like it. And I'm probably going to sign up for a subscription for me and, and at least Lonnie, maybe JF too, uh, as I move forward with some of these projects. How do you find it on iOS? I've heard complaints that the app is sort of weird in places. It's fine. You know, it, it gives me what I need. It's better than the Airtable app. The Airtable app on iOS is horrible. It's so bad that I just use Airtable in a browser window. I don't mm -hmm. try to use their app anymore. It's better than that. So um, to be honest, I mainly use it on the Mac. Uh, I'll go in on the iOS device and like mark something is done or whatever. But the the editorial type stuff I do on that usually happens when I'm sitting at my iMac. So I haven't hit enough speed bumps with it to actively dislike the app. Okay. Yeah. I want to hear how this goes for you because it notions, one of those things, I know a lot of people are very enthusiastic about it, like to a point where I sort of find it to be overwhelming. Yeah, it's like the initial GTD wave. It's like, yeah. please stop talking yeah, about this. Full disciples yeah. of the notion uh, lifestyle. But I sort of struggle with open-ended tools like this. Like, well, should I put my notes in here? Should I put my task in here? Do I like what, you know, I like apps that sort of do a thing. And this does many things. I really want to hear how you end up uh, working and breaking it down. So I definitely want to hear more about this as time goes on. For me, it is entirely a collaboration tool. It's mm -hmm. not replacing OmniFocus. Right. Um, but like I have a couple people I work with 
and they're on my team. You know, this isn't a client sharing tool. This is a team tool and like blog posts. There's a, there's a spreadsheet in there where you can mark the status as done or pending. And when I attach a date to it, it shows up automatically on a calendar in there. And it also splits it into a table. Same thing with a field guide. I've got a very extensive set of tables. It's already started for the paperless field guide where it's showing the individual videos and their status. And everybody that is working with me can get in there and see where everything is. Um, so that's really what it's good for, for me. Um, I know some people are using it like as a personal management system. I have no desire to move like Apple notes or drafts or anything into notion. Uh, I feel like that is too much weight for what I do with those things. Mm -hmm. But for collaboration, um, the, the selling point for me is that it combines things I was doing in Airtable plus things in uh, Basecamp, and it does them all in one place. And it's not that it's eight dollars a month per user for a team, so it's 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 affordable and it does what I need. So that's why I'm kind of interested in it. Okay, yeah, it makes sense to to bring things together in that way, but still keep your things separated out. Yeah. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by DevonThink from Devon Technologies. Get organized, unleash your creativity, and use the link in our show notes. That's devontechnologies.com slash MPU for 10% off. DevonThink is the flagship product from Devon Technologies. DevonThink is a professional document and information management application for the Mac, and it helps you collect, file, organize, edit, and annotate all kinds of documents so you can reach digital organizational heaven. Archive all your email with the enhanced email archiver and scan your paper documents with the revised scanner interface. What that means is you can be an Apple mill, hit a keyboard combination and just drop your email right into DevonThink. It's saved along with your documents and files. And uh, you can get to that with no problem. You can even imprint PDFs with custom stamps before giving them to others. Then organize your documents in a way that you want. You can use smart groups to let you create different views of your data. It's got integrated artificial intelligence to assist you with filing and searching. It's even got a whole rules workflow system. It's almost like having a set a hazel built into the application to automate filing all your documents for you. You can automate your workflow, create smart rules and flexible reminders to any document. They even let non-programmers easily automate many parts of the workflow so you can delegate the boring repeating tasks to DevonThink. And finally, sync your data securely between your devices using your preferred web storage or even directly on the local network. Take your data with you with DevonThink's iOS companion app. Now you can get 10% off DevonThink 3 or upgrade to it right now. Go to devontechnologies.com slash MPU. I talked about this in the show, how I've recently switched over to DevonThink. I literally bought this app three days before I found out they were going to be sponsored for the show. So I did not get to 10% off, but you can <laughs> go, go to devontechnologies.com slash MPU and get that 10% off. Uh, you know, you can get the 10% off since I didn't, uh, our thanks to Devon technologies for their support of this show and all of relay FM. It's June. Yes, it is. Which means WWDC is right around the corner. We're going to go like to a bunch of parties together. Mm -hmm. We're going to hang out at that fancy coffee shop, right? Mm -hmm. You and me? No. 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 I think the coffee shop went out of business. Yeah. Well, there wasn't enough WWDC. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's obviously all different this year with the pandemic. It's all online. This is not something super new for Apple. They've been posting the videos 
to WWDC online for a long time. The last couple of years, they've gotten them up basically same day, so you can kind of follow along. But this year, it is that way for everybody. No one is paying the thousands of dollars to get a ticket and to fly to California, stay in a hotel room, eat out for a week. It's all online, which uh, selfishly makes me sad because I really enjoy that week, uh, hanging out with work coworkers and, and listeners and friends, uh, maybe maybe next year. But I want to talk a little bit maybe about how you feel about the the online move, uh, and then maybe we can get into some things that we would like to see. Uh, you know, I'm I'm bummed that I don't get to see you and all my other friends. Um, I also think that I get so much more insight to Apple going to WWC and spending time with Apple people, even just the little story I probably shouldn't have shared earlier in the episode. <laughs> I get so much more appreciation for how hard their job is. I, I mean, people accuse me of being an apologist, but when you talk to these people and you know that they are aware of how hard this stuff is and they're working really hard to fix it, it it's not, it's hard not to root for them a little bit. So I miss that. And I, I think there's some insight we're going to miss out on from that. I know from the developer's perspective that the labs are super important to them but we haven't really heard how Apple's going to address that yet. But I also know that um, very few people have the, uh, the time and the means and, you know, everything that it takes to get yourself to San Jose for a week. Um, so maybe they'll put all that additional effort and time into making it better across the board. So I guess we'll just have to wait and see. Yeah. It's, it's unprecedented at this point. So we just, we just don't know what the future could hold. Yeah. And, and we don't know that if this is a one-time thing, because of the pandemic or if next year they're going to return to normal, or maybe they'll say, you know what, that worked out so well, we're just going to keep doing it. I'm sure for Apple, it's much less trouble for them to do it online. Oh yeah. (laughs) You're not having to throw a giant event with thousands of people, right? I mean, we've both been there. It's thousands of Apple employees and it's just, I can't imagine the logistics that it takes to pull something that off. Or, or just like some of their best engineers spend weeks preparing to give that presentation. Whereas if they could just do it in front of a video camera, it would take less time. Sure. So let's get into some of our hopes and dreams. I think this is not necessarily what we expect to see. I think this is what we would maybe want to see if we just had our way. Yeah, this isn't predictions. There's no awards. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. I'm so used to trophies on my other show. I know. I know, man. <laughs> But, okay, I'll tell you what. If if any of yours get picked, I'm going to send you a gold star, a Perfect. little card with a gold star. On. I like that. But the uh, but I do hope that these are things that we would like that we think are realistic that we could possibly see. Uh, you want to start? You want me to? Uh, why don't you go first? Lead it uh, off. I, uh, you know, another piece of low hanging fruit on the iPad is tags. You know, the file system has got better. There's still room for it to improve. But um, the tagging is abysmal, and um, I've kind of I've documented this in past episodes. But adding tags, finding tags on iOS is terrible, and it needs to be better. Even just a search bar, let me search for a mm-hmm. tag. I mean, there's so much about the Files app that is just funny, like <laughs> like things yeah. hidden behind buttons that don't make sense, and it really needs some some more thinking through. I think. Yeah, a, a do over would be great, but that's too much to ask for but at least make tags less horrible. There you go. How's that? How's okay. that for a goal? <laughs> uh, I'm going to go with a revamped messages app on the Mac. I would expect Amen. this to be in Catalyst, but look, it's living in the shell of iChat, right? It, it hasn't really changed that much and it kind of shows it doesn't have a lot of the features the iOS version has. 
I find a lot of the muting and stuff to be pretty buggy on Mac messages, where it works a lot better on iOS. I think it's time that they bring that to be a, a full, like proper messages client like they have elsewhere. Yeah, I really would like to see them retool Apple Mail. Yeah, we we just did a whole show on it. Mm-hmm. Um, it just needs work. Yeah, it really does. It's uh, it's pretty old fashioned. Yeah, and there's there's like smart mailboxes across the board. I mean, like just you know they've given so much work into feature parity over the years. This is one that we really need feature parity. The, the smart mailboxes in particular are one that bug me, but there's a whole bunch more. Um, yeah, please, please make Apple Mail better. Yeah. sharing button everyone does mail like this is a, yeah. a thing a feature that everybody could use more and more i hadn't really thought about it but maybe you know is that a feature that apple executives would have to use more now that they're working home you know would that put more of a spotlight mm. on this yeah it's like you could always count on keynote to get uh, updates when steve jobs was using it more yeah <laughs> it's sad that it takes that but sometimes it takes that yeah I'm going to go with a rethinking of the security pop-ups on the Mac. In Catalina, they added all these these windows. You have to give permission to show desktop documents, downloads, all of these things. And I see the good in what they're trying to do. They're trying to let the user know, hey, this application wants access to these various pieces of your file system. But I think that after the first couple ones, people are just going to click through them and hit accept. And then the time you really need to be aware that something wants to do that, then you, you click accept and then you run into trouble. So my specific suggestion is they tie that to the notarization process that if an app is notarized and you're an admin user on your Mac, I don't need to see those. But if I download something from the web or I'm a standard user, maybe I should see them. Just It, it just, it's so mind numbing to see those happen all the time. People just click through them. They're not effective. And so I think making them more rare makes them more effective. I'd like to see some love given to shortcuts in a couple specific ways. First, I'd like to see um, more memory given to developers. There's a whole bunch of shortcuts that break because they run out of space and it, it limits the power of mm-hmm. shortcuts. And sometimes it like has to kick back to the app. It's just like, it's just silly things that on a, when you look at how powerful the processor is, you know, that the, that the, um, the iPhone stacks up against a MacBook Pro. I don't think we need these limitations anymore. No. I think that the shortcuts should also stop treating every user like we're dummies. You know, um, a bunch of the automation stuff they have added confirmation dialogues. Like, really? You know? <laughs> I mean, if I put a location one and I set it and I show up, I just want the automation to run. I don't want to have to look at my phone and click a box, you know? And even if this is something that you turn off, I think um, some folks have talked about it like a, um, was it a power user mode or something like mm-hmm. that? But the, uh, but I just think uh, it just, there needs to be a way to use the tools they gave us without having to, to jump through additional hoops. But what I don't want them to do with shortcuts, I have a not want, I don't want them to put it on the Mac yet. I mean, we've got cool automation tools on the Mac I want the shortcuts team putting their time and effort into making it better on iOS because we really need it to be better on iOS. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I think a lot of people would say they want it on the Mac, but I see your point of view and I think I agree with it that if it spreads out their attention that honestly already seems pretty thin, shortcuts is is buggy in a lot of fundamental ways, that that would make it potentially worse on iOS over time. So uh, that makes a lot of sense to me. 
Well, get it, get it nailed down mm-hmm. on because if you want to automate on the Mac, you've got Apple Script, Keyboard Maestro, you know, yeah, Hazel, text. <laughs> it goes <laughs> on got, and on, right? Automate yeah. JavaScript, you can do. All yeah, you can stuff. do it in the terminal. I mean, there's yeah. just so much you can do. Whereas on iOS, you really only have this one tool, and mm-hmm. the tool needs work. So I'd like to see them improve it. Yeah, no, that's good. Uh, I'm going to go to one that I pull out every year because it hasn't happened yet is for photo libraries to be included in iCloud family sharing. We spoke about this in our photos episode. It's like, I don't want to have to use shared out, you know, the photo shared photo stream thing. Uh, I have switched to using the send iCloud link, which actually is really awesome. You, I learned that from your field guide, how, how good that is. But I really just want a way to see all of my wife's photos uh, or, or, you know, the ones that she wants to share with me and vice versa. I don't want to have to, once a month, sit down with our iPads and airdrop photos to each other that we don't that we don't have because it's taking up a lot of duplicate space in our iCloud storage. It's like, just 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 give me these tools because almost everyone could use them, right? I mean, how many people have we heard from over the years saying this? I know it's hard, I know it's complicated, but it would really, in my mind, round out iCloud photos for most people. I agree. How would you implement it if you were in charge? I think I think the most important thing is you'd have really clear understanding about whoever you share it with, what they can see. And so some way to select the albums or photos or events or faces, whatever it is that you want shared. And that's probably the hardest part because that could be a lot of overhead for the user to go through and check a bunch of boxes. So you got to work out a way to do that. But I think it's really important that people understand what they're sharing. Um and then I think you could have a way in photos to say, hey, I'm looking at my library and I want to switch and see someone else's library. And then I could, you know, have some way to, okay, I want all these photos out of my wife's library and copy them into mine if I want them, or I can just view them in hers and, and see them. So it's really complicated. Like I understand why they haven't done it, but I think it's totally doable. Yeah. And right now they're hosting your photos on their cloud server. So it wouldn't be hard to, mm-hmm. you know, once you figured out the mechanism, it's not like they don't have the photos to share. Yeah. You know, one of the things I'd like to see them do this year is cash a few checks they wrote last year. You know, I feel like we talked earlier about voice to text dictation. I feel like they didn't really finish that enough. Another one is HomeKit Secure Video, which got a lot of time on screen last year. Mm-hmm. And if you look around, there's really no really acceptable hardware. It's it's starting to show up now, and I, I haven't seen it working properly for anyone. I think part of it is the HomeKit implementation, part of it's the hardware. But I just feel like there's a, a bunch of pieces that they announced last year that never really came to fruition, and I'd like to see them actually just finish that, you know? Yep. Yeah, it's... There are very few options, and in my experience, it's difficult to manage the cameras and set up everything you want. So that it's got a long way to go to catch up with something like like Nest or, or Ring or somebody else who's been in it for a longer time. Yeah. Uh, one thing I want, and I really want to hear your input on this too, and, and it's a rumor, it's out there, but is widgets on the home screen of the iPad or iPhone. Right now, widgets are kind of locked away in the today view. You got to swipe over to see them. This has been a rumor for a long time, but to free those widgets to customize the home screen with more data. I would love to see this, but what about you? Yeah, I think I would too. I mean, I right now, as things stand, if I could make it when I unlock my phone, it gives me the Today View screen instead of the icons, I'd probably turn it on. 
because that's data that I've already decided is important to me and I have to swipe over to it. Um, the uh, I would love to see how they do it. I'd like to see how they implement it. I feel like Apple is not going to implement it the way Android does. It's probably going to be more subdued mm-hmm. and you're probably going to have less control. I mean, it's Apple, right? But I don't, I, I think it could still be pretty great. And uh, I just want to see what that means, you know. I'm absolutely willing to give up some apps on my screen to have more information. Yeah. And I sometimes use like the widgets behind the home icon deal where you can long press and see them, but yeah, it would be way better just to have them visible all the time. Like on my pixel phone, which you know, I've got a pixel three a that I use some, I have my to doist list just on the second screen. I can swipe over and look at my task and like check them off. I don't have to go into an app and just having that stuff surfaced is a really good idea. And I just don't use it as much on the iPhone because I've got to swipe over and then I got to scroll vertically. If you have more than three or four, it's a lot of scrolling. I think this would be a really nice addition because look, the home screen hasn't changed in 150 years, right? From the original iPhone, it's yeah. a grid of icons and it could be so much more. Well, and I think the way they should implement it, it should be an option. Yeah, because I think there's a bunch of people who if you change the home screen, they're going to lose their mind. None of them are listening to the Mac Power users, but they're out there. Like you, I do the same thing. OmniFocus is on the Today View screen, and it's viewable as soon as I open it. But that's one of the reasons why I would just like to open to the Today View screen. Uh, I don't want to swipe. I just want it to be there. So I, I am very curious about that, and I'm excited about that. I mean, they added that sort of to the iPad because the Today View screen can be available on the left side of the screen mm-hmm. when you when you have it in uh, portrait mode. And that is turned on all the time for me. Yeah, I have it on my 11-inch, but um, my iPad mini, uh, I don't because it's tiny. <laughs> does it even work on the iPad mini? I don't I think don't it know. does. Let me see. I say I don't have it on. Let me see if I can turn it on. We'll do some real-time follow-up here. This iPad is so tiny and has such big bezels. Uh, yes, you can turn it on. And it they're pretty small. I bet I'd probably turn it on though if I used an iPad Mini. The um, uh, what what are the widgets that go on your home screen on your iPad? You know that you can always see. Yeah, it's so like the I top ha- three. Yeah, so it's up next, which is you know task or a calendar items, carrot weather, and then to doist. Those are the three that I always want nearby. Yeah, I've got Fantastical, OmniFocus, and Dark Noise. Yeah, oh, Dark so Noise like- is good. Yeah. Well, that's, that's another, you know, getting back to the working from home thing, put the AirPods in and then play a thunderstorm and then you don't have to hear the terrible Shit's Creek music. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure it's a great show. The music makes me not want to ever watch the show. Yeah, that, that's, that's fair. <laughs> I got one more big one. All right. It is multi-user support on the iPad. Okay. This exists for education. It exists for business. You have to have some like behind the scenes stuff going on, but as someone with three kids, they don't use an iPad for recreation, right? It's, it's a tool for school for them. This would be killer for me just to have a couple users on the iPad. Even my, you know, a lot of times while homeschooling, my wife has had to like give her iPad pro to a kid to do their homework. It's like, then they're just on her iPad, right? Yeah. It'd be great to have a user where it's like the kid's face and they tap their face and they just have access to their stuff. It would be yeah. so welcome. And I think a lot of households. I'm just imagining Mary's face when a thousand dollars worth of Lego show up on the front doorstep well, that, from Amazon. She'll know that was me. She won't blame the kids for, <laughs> kids for that one. 
Yeah. All right. So what are we going to do on Mac Power Users since we can't go meet at WWC? Last year, we actually interviewed an Apple executive. It was really fun, but none of that's happening this year. What are we going to do? No, yeah, that's not that's not in the books for this year. So uh, this episode 540 is out at the regular time. Episode 541 was due out on the 21st, which is the night before the keynote. So instead of recording that and releasing it on Sunday, we're going to have it up after the keynote as sort of our reactions and kind of a, you know, like we did last time, right? We did this last year. And uh, so that will be up the 22nd or the 23rd, uh, that Monday or Tuesday. We're going to get it. We're going to get it out as soon as we can. And then after that, we'll kind of be back onto our normal schedule. So we'll just be one day late next time. So don't worry, we will be there. And, uh, you know, for me, I'll be watching the keynote at home in my office, taking a bunch of notes. It's a very busy week for both of us. And I'm excited to see. I'm excited to see what the format looks like. I'm excited to see what Apple's going to introduce. There's a lot of rumors about a lot of stuff. And it's just always a really fun time of year if you're an Apple nerd. You know what we left out of our predictions? Hmm. Any big features for the Mac? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I mean, yeah. ARM is always on the table until it happens. So I don't yeah. know. I don't know if this is the year or not. I I've, I always feel confident about that, and, but I've been wrong like three years in a row. So if it happens, it happens. It's going to be fun. So mm-hmm. so you won't have us on the Monday morning drive next week. Sorry about that. I guess if you really miss us, you could go listen to one of our other podcasts. Yeah. Sadly, Stephen and I make many of them, <laughs> but the, uh, but we'll be with you for your, hopefully for your Monday drive home or definitely for your Tuesday drive in. Yeah. That's our um, plan. Looking forward to it. And uh, we'll see you next week. We are the Mac power users. We are over at relay.fm slash MPU. Uh, thank you to our sponsors. One password set up Microsoft and Devon technologies. And like I said, we'll see you next week and we'll be talking about WWDC. Woo!